Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. Happy New Year, friends. There are traditions around the world for ringing in the new year, and many of these traditions involve drinking and music. Jill will talk about the various ways sparkling wine is made, and Emily talks about the famous yearly New Year's concerts with the Vienna Philharmonic, all while sipping on a type of sparkling wine called Pet Nat. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Cheers. We never start scores and pours by just drinking, but we are today. <laughs> we are today. Happy, <laughs> Happy New, New Year. Year to scores and pours. Scores and pours. Emily had the great idea of having a celebratory episode for, of course, our entry into 2020. Yes. And our saying goodbye to 2019. And I thought, why don't I showcase and talk about bubbles? That yes. seems pretty obvious in my yes. department. Yes. And Emily had really cool things to talk about. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll be talking about the tradition of the New Year's Eve slash New Year's Day concert that happens every year in Vienna for, it's been almost 100 years. I suppose it's been about 80 years now. Yeah. yeah. And I, I had heard about this, but I didn't know that it was like they have the same two scores, same two um, compositions that they play every year, and then they add one. Is that the case, right? For the encores, yep. Yeah. Yep. They, the, the three encores are the same. Uh, well, okay, sorry. Three encores every year, usually. You know, a conductor could mix it up, you never know. But traditionally speaking, for several decades at least of the last 80 years, there have been three encores, the first of which is determined by the conductor, the second of which is always the Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss Jr. or Johann Strauss II, however you like to call him, and the third encore is always the Radetzky March by his dad, Johann Strauss Sr. or the first. Gosh, so, and there you go. the Blue Danube. Blue really? Danube. I, I love roll it, though. It's, it, is, it's, it is. It's so good. But all I thought about when I listened to it was like a brawny commercial for paper towels. I know. Yeah. Back in 1989, <laughs> slowly wiping yeah. up, you yeah. know, a spill of some sort. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's true. It, it's true. The Blue Danube is definitely one of the most overplayed pieces of classical music in the world. I won't deny that. Yeah, let's play it on New Year's Eve. <laughs> because there is something quite special about hearing an Austrian orchestra play it. And we've talked about this. We talked about this in our Waltz episode several episodes back. But, um, you know, it's it's just really fun to hear an Austrian orchestra play it. And how fun to hear it on at the New Year's concerts, which are virtually impossible to get tickets to, by the way. You said to hear an Austrian ensemble play it. Mm-hmm. I want to go deeper there, but I feel like I should save that. I want to save that for yeah. as a teaser. Yes. Because there are special things that make the Viennese Philharmonic yes. sound 
Yes. Even cooler. But we won't, we won't, yeah, I won't it's go a there. Special, teaser, teaser. Yeah, it's a special orchestra with a little bit of a dark past maybe <laughs> and uh but they're 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 special and wonderful and they've overcome uh, just really uh they, they've overcome a lot to to still remain a premier orchestra in the world and a very special one so yeah well on the wine side i would of course talk about champagne but i also we've talked about PetNet on the show so we'll we'll speak to how they relate to each other but i also wanted to bring in what are two very popular methods as well for making sparkling wine, which is the Charmat method. Ooh, this is a new one to me. The Charmat method is very cool, as is, not so cool, the CO2 injection method, which is basically like has the texture of soda pop. So, okay. Can you, for my benefit, say that again? I'm sorry. (laughs) So we've got... (laughs) We've got four types that we're going to talk about on the show today, and they're, they're the four most common. Types they're, of sparkling wine. Yep, and okay. way, ways to make sparkling ways wine. Ways to make sparkling wine. Okay. Yeah, so um, okay. when we talk about the champagne method, mm-hmm. that's different than the Charmat method, gotcha. which is different than CO2 mm-hmm. injection method, mm-hmm. which is different, uh, that differs from the either Petillant Naturel style of wine that's made... Some people use them interchangeably with the ancestral method, the méthode ancestrale. I'm I'm going to say that they're one and the same for today because okay. there are a lot of sources will say they're the same thing, and then some sources will say the méthode ancestrale is disgorged. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. Um, but so I don't know. I figure I sh- should I just dive in and talk about some types? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that. All right. I'm so, going to have a drink of it. This do delicious. It, do it. Have a have a taste of Petnat. Uh, that's the last one I'm going to describe, so we can compare it to the wine. Okay. But so I'll compare the Charmat method, which is think of a lot of proseccos. A lot of proseccos are made using the Charmat method. And what's a prosecco? A uh, prosecco is a wine that's made out of the prosecco slash glera grape varietal okay. from northeastern Italy. So champagne slash traditional method sparklers start their lives much like a Charmat method wine. In theory, quality of grapes could all be great. They could all be shitty. So let's just say they're all great quality for now. Yeah. And there are various methods that in Champagne, we could complicate things by talking about the amounts of the kilos that are allowed in each press run. We're not going to do that today. We're going to talk about... There's lots of rules is what you're saying. Oh my, you should just see, it's just, we'll have a show about that shit, seriously. Okay. But so um, let's, let's just talk about the grapes come into the cellar and we make wine in champagne or in a traditional method sparkler, just like we do a Charmat method. We're taking grapes, we're pressing them, we're making wine, and this is where they diverge. Okay, this is where the, we've come to the fork in the road. We have come to the fork in the road. In a traditional method sparkler slash a champagne, what happens is, and I say traditional method slash champagne because you can make a champagne-like wine in California, right. in Australia, lots of places, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. cava is a traditional method sparkler from Spain. It's made just like champagne in many ways. Mm-hmm. It follows this process, yeah. which makes it different than a Prosecco. So okay. after we have wine, what happens in the traditional method is you've got, you you take that wine and you put it into a bottle and then you either add sugar and or yeast or you do, if you're a natural producer, you're adding grape must from the previous, 
you know, from either that year or previous vintage or something, and you spur what is a second fermentation in the bottle. Okay. In a Charmat method, you put your yeast and your sugar or whatever is your method in a big tank. Oh. So that second fermentation happens in the tank. So in th- the bubbles are in theory going to be finer, smaller, more persistent in the bottle. Oh, okay, okay. And in the tank, they're going to be, you know, uh, maybe a small, just a t- tiny bit bigger. They're going to have a little bit, I use cumbersome and don't think of it as a pejorative. They're not going to have the, as integrated or creamy in theory of of effervescence. Now, of course, there are producers that are making way better Charmat method wines and some crappy champagne or something, right? Yeah. But So that's the difference. And then in a champagne, after that second fermentation happens in the bottle, they get rid of some sediment and they that is disgorging. You're getting rid of the sediment. Okay. Whereas in a Charmat method, you don't need to do that. You're basically bottling it from the tank. It's already got bubbles. Yeah. And you're putting it into... The bottle. She's raising her hand. Yeah. I didn't know if I could stop you yet. Um, when you have something bubbly and you pour it into a glass, sometimes the bubbles lose some of their steam as you're pouring it into the glass. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, always they are. They, at first, they're sort of, when you pour it, you see this, you see your that your head, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that'll foam up and then it'll die down in mm-hmm. wine. Sometimes it doesn't, it sometimes it does not with beer. Mm-hmm. But um your your bubbles are gonna in, from the minute you open that bottle and mm-hmm. pour it into a glass, it's gonna start decreasing in effervescence. So in the Charmat method, therefore, ergo, some might say, <laughs> when you <laughs> lose some of the pep out of mm-hmm. your effervescence yep. from tank to bottle. You're technically that's a that's an awesome question and you could usually they're done in a pressurized method they're done in a the tank is pressurized and you're you're withdrawing that wine from tank to bottle in a way that you're in theory if you're losing atmospheres which is a way we measure gas it's a, such a finite amount okay so maybe they're they might adjust for that by saying okay let's Overestimate the amount of bubbles we want because we're going to lose X amount in bottling, gotcha. kind of thing. Okay, I and see. so interesting. We have we have champagnes have about five to seven atmospheres, which is the way we measure. Um, it's like basically pounds per square inch of pressure, mm-hmm. um, and each atmosphere is like about fourteen ish between fourteen and fifteen pounds per square inch of pressure at sea level. Okay. And then when we, we think of Proseccos or thing, other wines that are made in a Charmat method, they have about two to four atmospheres. So they're going to have just straight up less effervescence, less pressure in the bottle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. God, I love sparkling wine. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite delicious. One of the questions that's been burning on my mind since this episode has been approaching. So you've mentioned now Prosecco. Uh, Petnat is pretty specific, although not regionally specific. So how many named, this could be so absurd of a question as well, how many named types of sparkling wines are there, like Prosecco, Champagne, 
Like how many specific, are there just dozens and dozens and dozens? Yep. Okay. Okay. So like, so like you would say that word and just know that that's a sparkling wine. Well, so for example, the traditional method, yeah. the same method that's used for champagne. Yes. If you're going to be, uh, there are seven other places in, okay, Cremant. If you see Cremant mm -hmm. de something in France, that means that there are, it's made in the traditional method, okay. but it's from Cremant de Bourgogne. It's from Burgundy. Cremant de Bordeaux. There's freaking Cremant de Luxembourg, you know, like, <laughs> okay, which is not okay. within France. But so there are certain keywords that if you're in wine, you're like, oh, oh. that's going to have the same amount of atmospheres as a champagne. Okay. Granted, now there are <laughs> different laws for those rule books. Okay. So you'll have less required time on lees, which is the dead yeast cells that precipitate out in bottle. There's going to be different rules for different countries, different appellations that are able to make traditional method wine if it's a named place, like you said. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but how many places could be, I mean, there's there are places like Francia Corta. You see Francia Corta in Italy, you know, oh, that's made just like champagne. Okay. So there okay. are lots and lots yeah. and lots. Okay. Cool. Yes. <laughs> Love it. Gotta know those. All yes. of them. <laughs> There's a Cremant de Wallonia people in southern Belgium. Just F, That's a really useless piece of information. <laughs> Let's get on to the VPO. I want to try it, though. I do, too. <laughs> uh, so the Vienna Philharmonic, they've been around for ages and ages and ages. Please tell me that you looked that up because I forgot to even look up how long. I know how 1842. long. 1842. Okay, 1842. Thank you. So... If we remember correctly, that's right. <laughs> so if we remember our eras, that's smack dab in the middle of the Romantic era, which is nice. They started these New Year's Eve slash day concerts, uh, 1939. So if we remember our history as well, 1939, the end of 1939 in Austria, that's Nazi time, okay? Uh, World War One or two rather, World War Two has started by now, and terrible things are happening. So that concert was a propaganda concert. Uh, Johann Goebbels, like, gave it the okay as, like, following with propaganda in uh, the correct way, helping to boost the morale of troops, and there were profits that were given to, I can't remember, some kind of socialist party of some sort. Uh, so, so not great, but um, it, it's developed from there yeah. <laughs> into a tradition. And, and it's really a wonderful one uh, that now people all around the world can see because it's televised in dozens upon dozens of countries. And uh, it's really wonderful. They put out an album every year. They've been doing that since I think the 70s. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a fun time. So in any event, do you want to hear some Viennese waltzes? I would love that, okay. please. Uh, by the way, they, they tend to play music by Johann Strauss and the Strauss family, that wonderful uh, Viennese family of dance composers. And do you find that they favor playing that more than they would, say, Mozart? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're not playing Mozart. So why, yeah. you know, him being also Austrian, yeah. and why would they not be all over in the, you know, whom hails from Austria and is, is obviously very famous composers, you know? I mean, Strauss had connections to the Vienna Philharmonic for one thing. Uh, so that's part of it. I think also, you know, cause of course, by the time the Vienna Philharmonic started, Mozart had been dead for, uh, almost 50 years. So, or more than 50 years. So 
it's like there's that connection that Strauss conducted the the Vienna Philharmonic a time or two. Okay. There's also the connection that that very first concert in 1939, that's what the composer or the rather the conductor uh, Clemens uh, Krauss conducted that night was like all Strauss music. And so I think it just kind of stuck, hmm. you know, and cool. they'll they'll dabble with some other Viennese. Well, not even just Viennese, but and that's part of it, too, by the way. <laughs> that's actually a pretty big deal. Mozart's not from Vienna. And that city was not kind to him. Oh, okay. They were kind to him after he died, but that city was not very good to him during life. Okay. So, so that might so, be part of it, too. So they're, it's quite centered on Viennese composers. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, you know, Vienna was the kind of the hub of the waltz craze in that time in the late 1800s. And so that just kind of stuck, I think, for this, this show. All right. Well, let's yeah. listen to some. Yeah, let's... So you might remember from our waltz conversation uh, that a waltz such as the Blue Danube waltz is actually a collection of waltzes. So there are a number of dances in here. You know, the melody changes as we go through and there tends to be a nice slow opening such as what we're hearing right now. Yes, a little tremolo in the violins. <laughs> building such drama romantic era mm-hmm. listen to that beautiful cello writing though I mean it is kind of inviting you know I mean on the 34th up until the 34th time <laughs> no just kidding it's beautiful I think it's just been overused it has definitely been but overused but it's gorgeous so wonderful. Now the fun begins. Can you speak to, and I would love it if you're able to fit it in, the different, I couldn't believe when I started to research that they like use certain clarinets mm-hmm. and their trombones are a little bit of a different length than yeah. your typical, like when people well, say Well, it's not length, it's width, but yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Length can't be... Length would change the the key, right? Yes. Yes. So Um, thank you for correcting me a different width. But so what's cool (laughs) is when people say they sound different, I would say, well, of course they sound different. They're a whole different group of people. But it's like they actually sound different because their instruments are different. And that's, it's super cool if you research how many things, Mm -hmm. like bullet points there. It's almost, there's hardly an instrument that isn't, altered in some way and and the you know if you do look up the list there actually you know a lot of european instruments can be different in general you mm-hmm. know so it's not 
it's not out of the ordinary to find someone in the Berlin Philharmonic, say, playing with a different size clarinet or something. Something that I read was about the, the megahertz level and how it's Oh, like, how they tune differently. It's just so, a little bit like... Yeah. Now, the in in our Baroque episodes, especially when we talked about historically informed performance practice, mm-hmm. uh, we talked about how Baroque orchestras were tuned lower mm-hmm. than normal. So if you listen to a recording of Bach Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 1 by a modern orchestra with modern instruments, it's going to sound maybe up to a full step higher than if you listen to an early music ensemble play that same piece. The, now, the Vienna Phil, they tune higher. So instead of tuning to like, you know, so so A round much of the world is at 440 hertz or megahertz, or I don't even know the correct correct terminology, but it's 440. Sounds higher. A 440. MN sounds higher. And the Vienna Phil tunes at, I think, 443. So it's slightly sharp, and that hands down uh, contributes to a brighter sound. So that also, in addition to the lengthy list of instruments that are uh, not what normally you would find, um, definitely makes it sound like a completely different orchestra. So we're going to compare these two orchestras side by side uh, so you can hear how different the Vienna Philharmonic sounds. We're going to compare them to the London Philharmonic. Uh, The London Philharmonic is, of course, an absolutely wonderful ensemble, one of the best in the world. So this comparison is only for comparison's sake, not to say one is better than the other, of course. So here you have a recording of the London Philharmonic playing the Blue Danube Waltz by Strauss. And so now, here's the Vienna Philharmonic, and then I'll do them side by side again, just so you can hear it again. how different they sound. They do sound sharper, that's for sure. And rich, they sound rich. It sounds simultaneously brighter and warmer. Crazy, yeah. Now can we go back to the other one? Yeah. Doesn't it sound heavier? Yeah. That's because of the tuning. Yep. Well, that's a big part of it. Yeah. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah. 
So yeah. interesting. So cool. It's a special, that's why I keep saying it's a special place, man. And they, like, you know, they have tried their best to kind of uh, acknowledge their past as being not the best organization in the world, not even the ladies. Forget it. I mean, it was a recent addition, right? Allowing ladies to become part of. Allowing ladies to become true members of the orchestra, which is what they call it. That took till the 90s, but they let women play with them long before that. They just wouldn't let you become like a member of the club, you know? Well, and I I thought it was um, pretty, you know, a pretty thick entry into, you know, you have to be part of the, what is it, the Vienna Opera House or something like that. And that that orchestra mm-hmm. and like c- show you can cut the mustard for like three years before you can even apply yeah. and start the whole, that whole process. So it seems yeah. like pretty... Obviously intense. I mean, and and there are a lot of orchestras around the world with very elite standards like that yeah. because they, you know, there are so many talented players around the world. They're, you know, they got to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of um, not such a talented method of making wine, <laughs> let's talk about um, let's talk about CO two injection. Okay. And and we'll we'll talk about pet gnats because um, Emily's showing me her empty glass mm-hmm. and being like, just "Give me some didn't wine." No, if you saw that or not, I, I definitely did. Okay. Um, so CO two injection, it's exactly what it sounds like. You're injecting carbon dioxide into wine and getting soda pop like bubbles which are as big as you and I are and <laughs> and very just sort of they can be fun but they tend to just be kind of cumbersome. Um, they're never really you don't have CO2 injected wines that are elegant in any way. Oh, well that's what I was just going to ask you. Are there any elite uh, wines that are CO2 injected or Not that I'm aware of. Gotcha. There may be, but I I haven't come across one. I've have a They're friend, not on your radar. No, and I have a friend who makes one and every time I taste it I'm like that really Friend of mine, I adore you and your wines. That sucks. <laughs> so, you know, the last thing I'm going to talk about is, um, and then I'd love to touch on the history because it's incredibly interesting how we have sparkling wine. Like everybody thinks that champagne has been champagne forever um, and that we've had sparkling wine for centuries, and we we have and we haven't. Um, but to, just to, to, to clean up the last of the types of sparkling wine we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about pet nats. They are all the rage right yes. now on the coasts and here. We're tasting one today called, uh, it's from a producer, Franz Salmon, who's in the Loire Valley. And he makes this wine called Le Petit Gaul du Matin. And it's a blend of every year, There's it, he tweaks it a little bit, but it's um, usually Chenin Blanc that's blended with a little bit of Menot Pinot. And then um, a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc sometimes I've heard is in there. But these these limestone soils, he's grow, he's got some clay soils as well. But he's it always is really fun, bright, kind of bready. Like to me, this smells like croissant dough. It, it's got this finish of Werther's, but it's dry. It's just so delicious. He's very low amounts of sulfur. And a pet net is actually one of the oldest methods we have for sparkling wine, even mm. though we think it's new and fun and cute. Mm-hmm. Um Pet nets, the wine is is born just like all other wines. They have a fermentation of which this has all native yeast for the first fermentation, meaning he's not adding any packeted yeast. Mm -hmm. And then he bottles it when it's still converting to wine. So there's still some sugar left that's inherently in the grape juice. Mm -hmm. And what happens is those native yeasts continue to feed in the bottle, respiring and producing CO2. 
and you're left with this wine that is got this beautiful amount. You can see the cascading bubbles that are not rushing like a champagne, but they're definitely there. And when you taste it, it doesn't taste as charged, as gassy as right. a as a sparkling champagne. Right. But you have about two to four ish atmospheres in a pet nat. Pet nat means petillant naturel or natural bubbles or natural frizzante. And they're just made in a way that before people understood yeasts and before people understood how to get bubbles in a bottle, a lot of times this was a surprise. They would bottle wines maybe a little bit sweet because that was preference. Mm -hmm. And then the fermentation would slow in the autumn because of cold temperatures. And then the spring when they'd warm up again, the yeast would keep feeding. They'd wake up too, and you'd be left with either an explo- like exploding bottles downstairs, <laughs> or in the cellar, or you'd be left with a wine that had this nice, like spontaneous and surprising sparkle. A lot of people propose that that's the beginning of sparkling wine as we know it was this, okay. of course, this accident, and now it's all the rage. Here's to Petillon Natural. Nom, love it. Are there red ones? Um, there are red Petillon Naturels, not as many as there are white or rosé, but they are around. I bet Why? Mm, good question. Uh, that's probably, my opinion would be it's due to trend. Like people don't, you know, if you think of sparkling reds, you're thinking of terrible sparkling Shiraz. You're thinking of good or bad quality Lambrusco. Um, but it, my guess is just that, that it's because people just do it with, this is more marketable. It's my gotcha. guess. That's my guess. All right. Love it. There's one thing I quick wanted to mention uh, before I pass the baton is um, in this world of people being more curious about natural wine and or, or wines made in more of a hands-off method as much as possible, pet nets are a great bet because in order to – it's just – it tends to be a trend that a lot of producers that make pet nat are also making natural wine. Mm-hmm. So they're controlling the process in their cellar a little bit more of hands-off or – or minimal intervention, um, and so it's it's just a good good guess. If you see a pet net on the shelf, um, chances are it's going to be a lot more "quote unquote" natural than say a champagne or traditional method sparkler. Okay, interesting. Love it. And this could be on or off the record, but the reason why, because I get the question why, oh. um, is because you know traditional method wines usually they're tied up in the cellar having that second fermentation happen and the time on those dead yeast cells to give them complexity and aromatics, there's a lot more fiscal tie-up in the cellar. And so things need to be a lot more predictable. Like rotor champagne needs to taste the same every year. So they're making it, the blender obviously needs to be amazing, but the, the profile needs to be the same. Whereas next year, La Petite Gale du Matin tastes a little bit different People in natural wine would be like, great, cool. I love that it's different. You know, so they're they're mm-hmm. also have that luxury and it's, you know, going out the door and it's selling every year, yeah. not tied up in the cellar. So just a little bit more about the concert. If you want to go, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I will go someday. Uh, yeah, we'll go for sure. Um, hopefully, we'll go for scores and pours. I mean, you can go if you want, but hopefully, I'll be there with you. And yes, the scores and pours. VPO. But it's it's in the Musique Verein, which is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful concert hall in the world. And 
music sounds like it's coming straight from heaven when played in the Musikverein. So that's a great place to see a show, for one thing. <laughs> uh, but the way they do it is you sign up a year in advance. So if you want to go next year, uh, you have to sign up this year, and then it's lottery anyhow. So, you know, I'm not – it's just – it's it's a, cra- a little bit of a crapshoot. So these, these days they have a different conductor every year. It used to be, you know, back in the start and from 1939 when Clemens Krauss was the director of the VPO, he conducted it for many, many years. And then there was a year where he was sick or died, I think. Um, and so Vili Boskovsky did it, who was the concertmaster at the time. And then Vili Boskovsky did it for years and years and years after that. Um, and, you know, kind of more or less in the, in the last couple decades they've started to – Switch it, switch it around and have a, a guest conductor each year, which is nice. Because, by the way, the Vienna Philharmonic, another thing that makes them unique, and there are other ensembles like this in the world, uh, they don't have someone who's the conductor of the Vienna Philharmonic. They bring in people to kind of collaborate with the orchestra on specific concerts. Do you know why that or, is? Is it just some people have different expertises in, in certain perhaps composers or scores than others? Fresh blood, all that stuff. A new conductor and mixing it up is going to keep the orchestra really fresh all the time because you're working with, you know, new people all the time. And um, they're also, I mean, I guess they can be really choosy with who they invite. So it it can kind of depend. But also your repertoire tends to be a little more deep when you're bringing in, you know, someone new every season or concert or however it is that they handle it. I can't quite recall. But for instance, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, which is, I believe, the only full-time paid chamber orchestra in the country, and it happens to be right here in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, they uh, do something very similar where they invite artistic uh, collaborators or artistic guests. I can't remember what they call them now. Artistic partners, maybe. Um, And those people are in charge of so many concerts for so many years and they kind of shape how they want to spend that time with the orchestra over that contracted time or whatever. So, yeah, uh, we I just thought we'd listen to some Radetzky March. Another one that is always performed. Uh, almost always an encore. And if it is used as an encore, it's the last one. And what you said about it, you know, just the entire idea of this the New Year's Eve and New Year's Day and how everything was concocted, that it was very patriotic. This was actually, the Radetzky March was also to celebrate a win in battle, correct? It was like, so you can, when you listen to it, of course, it's a beautiful piece, but it does sound very pride, nationalistic. Oh, yeah. Did did you recognize it when you heard it? Had you heard it before? I had heard it before, but I didn't know that it had that background. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's listen. I do want to say, though, that it's, as we just heard, we just heard a march by Johann Strauss Sr., and earlier we heard a waltz by Johann Strauss Jr. Now, all the Strausses wrote lots of waltzes, but they wrote lots of 
other dance music as well, including polkas. And so at the New Year's Eve concert or the New Year's concerts, you hear a lot of Strauss polkas as well. And lastly, they don't just limit it to the Strauss family. So you hear from other Viennese dance composers, such as Josef Lenner, and we'll hear, or Lanner, I guess, probably. We'll hear from Josef Lanner in a little bit. And then my portion of this show will be concluded. Well, before we do that, let's talk about a brief history of sparkling wine. Please do. So people can kind of get a get a grasp on how, how this occurred because, um, you know, as I just talked about, Pet Nats, sort of the beginning of it all. I mean, in a way that was not predictable. It was an accident. And so we know that there are records of in the mid-1500s in Gaillac. Where's so that? South, southern France, like northeast of Toulouse. Okay. In Gaillac, there, there were sparkling wines that were made and made with some sort of consistency. I mean, they were around. They, they weren't necessarily shipped all over the world at that time, but people were writing about the fact that wines with effervescence existed, not in that way because we didn't talk about it with effervescence. We used words like lively. This wine is lively, and you knew, really? that, you knew that it was sparkling. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of awesome. So in 16 and 1700s, a lot of wine from, and we use champagne as sort of a benchmark because they were shipping a lot of wine at the time. It's close, so they were shipping a lot of wines to England. And they would ship wines in cask because it was a lot more affordable to do that. And the French were using uh, wood-fired, uh, like they were using wood to fire to to create their bottles. Okay. So they were thinner. So if they did ship bottles, those bottles were either having a little sparkle sometimes, sometimes they'd be still, sometimes they'd blow up. But when they shipped them in cask and the... Um, English would bottle them. Mm-hmm. The English at around the same time, um, they were using, in like especially around the mid-1600s, they were using coal-fired glass, which allowed for it to be thicker okay. so it would withstand the pressure. Glass? Glass, okay. thank you. No, you said glass. I just wanted to verify. Yep, yep. So um, what would happen is you'd be, you'd have this wine that would, they'd ship it in cask, it would be still, and then they would bottle it. And if it would... You know, if they had the situation with the temperature fluctuation and whatnot and the yeast would, you know, fire up again, you'd be left with this wine that would actually sparkle. So 16 to 17, that 17th century is when we start to see like, you know, wines are sparkling, sometimes they're not, but we see the glass becoming like important way to harness and not allow for bottles to explode. <laughs> then we get to about 1660-ish, where this scientist, his name was Christopher Merritt. He was an Englishman. And he he learned that if you add sugar and or molasses, it would, quote, promote effervescence. So we start to learn now that we we need to add a sugar source in order to have wines that maybe they were still but we want them to ferment in the bottle or they were maybe fermenting, but we want, we want more sparkle. We know that adding a sugar source helped that because before they didn't know, they didn't know yeasts were the reason that wine even happened. You know, that, that doesn't happen until like the late 1800s. So people are like, oh my God, this, this is like, it's a miracle from God (laughs) that we have sparkle, you know, in reality science. Um, (laughs) 
And then we actually, just to speak to this episode where we're talking about celebratory things, um, it's around the 1780s that um, bubbles become like the status symbol, and they were usually sweeter. But you, we start to see aristocracy, nobility, like purposefully seeking out sparkling wine during receptions, New Year's Eve, things mm-hmm. like that. And then it, it starts to become part of, you know, plebeian life or, or, <laughs> or, or, or people that can afford it, um, but, but not necessarily relegated to nobility. Yeah. Like post-French Revolution, we start to see people like having it at baptisms, having it at weddings, and now hopefully people are just having it on Tuesday because <laughs> they can. <laughs> I had some last night with a football game and pizza. Yes. Um, so sparkling wine became, I would say, like a celebratory thing. I don't want to say globally, but in Europe, like post, post-French post Revolution. And then finally, 1830s is when we see a gentleman, André Francois, who he starts to, he deciphers and he publishes that he knows the exact amount of sugar that he needs to add in order to create this X amount of yeah. sparkle. Okay. And that has that is what, and to like control carbonation, and that like revolutionizes sp- sparkling wine up until that point. So thanks to Andre Francois. Thank you, Andre. Yes. God, I'm so grateful for that man. I know. And now we talk about whenever you're talking to winemakers that make Petit Naturel, mm-hmm. you'll ask how many grams per liter of residual sugar w- was your wine at when you bottled it? And yeah. depending on what they say, it will give you an idea of how many atmospheres, yeah. just like hap- happily minds being blown. Love that. Um, the more we learn about sparkling wine. It's delightful. I think we should just drink more. So let's listen to a waltz from a different Viennese dance composer, Josef Lanner, who was buddies with Josef Strauss Sr., the dad. In fact, uh, Strauss Sr. played in Lanner's orchestra, uh, his dance orchestra. Cool. So every once in a while at a New Year's Eve or a New Year's concert at the Vienna Philharmonic, you'll hear some Josef Lanner as well, because um, that's kind of what gave Strauss the idea in the first place, was, hey, Lanner's making a killing. I bet I could too. Wasn't Josef Lanner the one who said, hey, you know, or one of one of the first to say, hey, waltzes aren't necessarily just for the common folk anymore. Like, it can actually, it, is, it isn't just a, you know, for that for that yeah. class, it can actually be for everyone, including nobility, including. I don't. I, I. I guess I'm not sure if he actually said that. Maybe if you saw that somewhere that he said that. Said that. No, not but said that. But he, he definitely like, capitalized at the very least on the fact that the waltz had become popular for everyone. Whether or not he led that or not, um, he had like the popular dance orchestra in Vienna at the time, and they played a lot of waltzes, but they played a lot of polkas and gallops as well. So here's some Joseph Lanner. This is a gallop, just another kind of fast dance called the Spanish Gallop. I always think it's funny to listen to composers from one country, especially in that era, 
like late 1800s. This is Austrian Josef Lanner riding a Spanish gallop. So what does he think that sounds like? He thinks that sounds like this. It's so good. <laughs> right? Yeah, so we're just dancing, having a good time right now. Maybe with some Riesling, which is sparkling as well. And is from Austria. It's not always sparkling. They're probably drinking Gemistersatz, which is a field blend from the outskirts of Vienna. wanted to just give this wine its due diligence because we talked a little bit about how it smelled and how it, it um, the finish, it kind of tasted like Werther's Originals, kind of caramely, but definitely yes. it's, a, it's, a, it's a drier or just flirting with off-dry wine. But what do you think about the bubbles? Like when you taste it and you, you know, you swish it on your gums so it has mm. a little tannin because of those bubbles. Like yeah. how does it, how does it feel in your mouth? How is the effervescence? Is I, it supercharged like a beer or a soda? No, no, or is no, no, it, no, no, no. Okay. So it's lower than that. Yeah, it's it's very, um, you know, I kind of think of like this could such be bullshit, but, you know, the like when stuff is on nitro tap oh, and it's mm-hmm. like not nearly as like hectic, bubbly, you know, or like a that's like a good a, that's a good a way British to British or, a, you know, English, not English or kind British, of a creamier, like a more UK kind of a yeah, just OK, smoother. Okay, it's I could go there. Smooth. I love it. It's got yeah. It's it definitely has lower atmospheres than a champagne or a traditional method wine. What I love about it is so Chenin Blanc and Sauvignon Blanc have an insane amount of acidity, and so this is like really refreshing. The mm-hmm. acidity is is medium, flirting with a little bit more than that. But this is also as much as you could guzzle it. I've said it, I think, time and time again, maybe not on, on scores and pours, but my favorite wines are those that I can think more about scores and pours than I'm thinking about the wine, but also I can think about the wine and beat it to death because it makes me just think about it so much. <laughs> and what I love about this is it's a really great melange of varietals together with just, you know, the smallest amount of atmospheres. Mm-hmm. You know, my guess is this is probably right around three and a half to four is my guess. Okay. And it's just so beautiful and fun and delicious and thought-provoking, yet if you gave it to me in a pint glass, I'd be like, do you have a liter glass? <laughs> you know? Like, it's like that that uh, easy drinking, so. It is very easy drinking. Thanks. It's delicious. Thanks to France Salon. Thank you, France. And also that other guy who determined how to measure it all. Andre Francois. Andre, yeah, Andre. And Christopher Merritt. Yes. Thanks, Christopher Merritt. Thank you, Christopher Merritt. For writing thank you notes to, um, as What's-His-Face does, Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> thank you, Christopher Merritt, for deciding that sugar and molasses were necessary for sparkle. <laughs> thank you, Andre Francois, for deciphering the exact amount of sugar necessary to harness X amount of carbonation. 
Thank you, Dom Perignon, <laughs> for not being. Everybody gives Dom Perignon all the credit in the world for inventing champagne. He wanted to get rid of sparkles, so I would just say, thank you, Dom Perignon, for actually being a great blender, learning that you needed to be a good blender to create great champagne and consistency. Discours and pours. Discours and pours. Thank you for listening to episode 25 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours and Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.